Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The weekend before Thanksgiving, the Halifax International Security Forum convenes in Nova Scotia's capital, Halifax, for an extraordinary meeting of political, diplomatic, military, and civil society leaders that focus on the importance of fostering democracy around the world. It's an extraordinary gathering that helps us shape our coverage throughout the year, uh, whether in the themes uh, we discuss there or in the guests who join us afterward. Uh, unfortunately, this year I wasn't able uh, to attend, uh, but it is my honor to welcome to the program my friend and the driving force behind the forum, Peter Van Prague. Peter, uh, welcome back. Uh, another great forum, and it's it's just wonderful having you back on the program. Vago, thank you so much for having me back on. It's great to be with you. Um, we all missed you. A lot. Everyone missed you in Halifax this year, um, but I'm delighted to talk with you now. Uh, it is uh, important, and I want to tell the audience that Peter is going to be joining us on a more regular basis because I think we do need a voice that addresses some of the democracy mechanics uh, at a very, very important time when, unfortunately, democracy is is being challenged uh, world, worldwide. Uh, Peter, the forum uh, is uh, about democracy, but each forum has uh, a theme, and this year it was Crinks, uh, China, Russia, Iran. Uh, and North Korea, and that they're not just individual threats anymore, but they're increasingly coordinating their actions to undermine democracies worldwide. A few weeks, a few years ago, the forum unveiled what I think still remains as one of the clearest primers or diagnoses on why China is problematic and what to do about it as an international community. What's the talk, talk to the audience a little bit about the threat that the Crinks pros and why it's time for Washington and its allies to actually look at this as conjoined, a conjoined threat, as opposed to just sort of individual different slices. Well, I'll go, um, appreciate it. That's exactly right. Um, uh, the Krinks are essentially, you know, some people have written about this and the fact that we've, we've coined this term, the Krinks, and they've compared it to the axis of evil uh, that Mr. Bush, uh, language that Mr. Bush used, um, after 9-11, and, and I, I I think it's more important actually just to call them what they are, which are the Krinks. Um, this is a group that is not uh, formally connected, um, but they are working together um, in military means now, both in Ukraine and in the Middle East. Um, but beyond that, using different mechanics and different uh, means to undermine uh, our democracies. Um, so essentially, you know, the democracy is led by the United States. Um, we're, we are not at war on several fronts, but but one. This is the, the world has become essentially one front um, with increased uh, coordinated action by the cranks. I mean, and to, to put uh, not too fine a point of on it, um, essentially North Korea and Iran now are, responsible for uh, equipping and arming uh, Russia. Uh, Russia is and is and has basically uh, allowed Russian the Russian economy to fill the void while while its economy um, re recovered uh, and gets re uh, sets itself on a war footing. Um, the Russians have have um, taken um, concrete um, delivery from from North Korea and Iran on uh, technology and in drones. And all of this, of course, is backed up financially by the Chinese. 
And, and so what does a workable strategy on this look like, Peter? Because it's tough enough to get people to wake up to the threat from China, right? And then we have a tendency of dealing with China or using China to balance Russia, right? So we've been cozying up again uh, to uh, China, right? I mean, the Chinese are playing a long game. They're not looking at these ebbs and flows. And so is Vladimir Putin. Uh, ultimately, what what's the way to get the international community together to act on these issues in a more concerted fashion, as opposed to looking at them as individual slices, uh, as we unfortunately all too many of us are doing? Yeah, well, well, number one, I think is, you know, as Harry Potter taught all of us, um, you know, you have to call it by its name. Uh, uh, and, you know, there are those in Europe who want to have their eyes closed and not, by the way, including even in Ukraine. Uh, or even mostly in Ukraine, who do not want to acknowledge the threat that China poses. And then you've got those democracies in South Asia, India is the, is the most important one, that do not want to acknowledge the danger that, that Russia poses. And so, you know, if we are going to meet those challenges as democracies, we have to call it by its name. That's why uh, the term crinks is so important, because it lumps them all together in terminology that really sounds like what they are. Um, but none of this can be done. Um, without strong American leadership. So, you know, uh, Vago, what I want to tell you is um, we've had a rough 20 years uh, after 9-11. Afghanistan um, started out well, uh, a lot of rebuilding of institutions, um, and there was real optimism, and all of that came to a crashing end in, in, uh, in 2021. And then we had... Um, uh, Iraq, of course, has, has very mixed results um, with a lot of influence in Iraq uh, from Iran now. Um, and what Mr. Putin uh, has done, frankly, with his invasion of Ukraine is he has given uh, all of us the chance for a do-over. Uh, and I've talked about this. And so really, what do we have to do? We have to help the Ukrainians stand firm uh, in their fight against uh, the Russians um, this is not something that uh, is, you know, we're debating it. Uh, President Zelensky is is here. We're going to do as much as we can, but more has to be done to ensure that that uh, Ukraine um, is, is successful and actually is victorious over the Russian aggression. That that in and of itself um, can really help set the stage for for generations. Um, and then the opposite is also true. If we do not stand firm. If there is some type of deal that is now some being talked about by in the press by people who who can't be named who are speaking off the record, um, then that will have catastrophic strategic uh, consequences for generations. I want to I want to uh, get to that uh, in in a moment. But you mentioned right. I mean, whether it's uh, you know even forces in Ukraine, right? China is a very important market, and they want to make sure that there is access to Chinese capital. Uh, the Indians uh, both look to Russia for military equipment, but but also you know there are economic links there. There are even some uh, in India, despite the problems uh, with China, to look at China as a potential partner later, especially as unfortunately Narendra Modi in India becomes more uh, ill-liberal. Uh, What's the mix of carrots and sticks uh, that you would recommend Washington and its allies uh, use? Um, because, you know, there is there are ways to use both tools in order to get both partners and allies together, but also message. Uh, although, right, I guess what you're saying is the, the days of the Kissingerian play China against Russia and vice versa are over. 
What are the mix of incentives and and specific things you might suggest to help us uh, get to a better place ultimately? Aside yeah. from vigilance and honesty, right? I love that Voldemort line, by the way. So, uh, um, yeah, we're not going to play Russia off China. I think I think that there are some who who still think that that is you know that the the biggest challenge is China, and that somehow um, making a deal with Russia will somehow turn Russia uh, against China. Of course, there's no love lost um, in the relationship between Russia and China. It's not a natural uh friendship relationship but what has happened and it is mr putin who's chosen to do it he'll say that it's that's the west that drove him to do it which is a lot of nonsense um uh is that the relationship between china and russia now is 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 close and it is constructive and they are both benefiting from it so what needs to and what needs to, there's a lot of talk about the global south there's a lot of talk about you know, bringing the entire world behind the United States and behind the West. How do we do that on Ukraine? And um, the way to do that is to win. It's really, it's really quite simple. Um, and frankly, countries in in the global South, in Latin America, in Africa, in the Middle East, um, and you know, in South Asia, um, are really looking to see what happens. And so, um, should should the West uh, falter and flounder and not support Ukraine? Um, that is going to really, you are going to see an exodus of support, um, and it's going to go directly to the Russians, directly to the Chinese, um, whereas the converse is exactly true. Standing firm in Ukraine is going to be very, very important. The other thing that's really important is standing firm against the Iranians and everything that they're doing right now to support uh, chaos in the Middle East. Um, that is in Yemen, that is in Iraq, that is in um, uh, Lebanon. And it is certainly in in the Palestinian territory. So it's it is all of these things now are all connected, and it's just very important that the stuff is uh, the United States is seen to stand firm to stand firm with the democracies. But uh, for a lot of domestic political reasons, as we uh, saw during the uh, presidency of Donald Trump, right, uh, that America is the model of democracy might not actually stand up either in uh, rhetoric or or in action. One of the concerns folks have is even though there is support and bipartisan support for helping Ukraine for a lot of domestic political reasons, uh, it more aid may not be coming. Uh, a, a year after, you know, Vladimir Zelensky was here uh, in the United States uh, to accolades, uh, Peter, um, what more does Ukraine need? And can the international, you know, and can Europe and can our allies compensate for what the United States doesn't give? Because the Ukrainians are in a very, very tough spot. The the offensive has ground to a halt, but without American support, it starts to get very difficult. Anyway, what do they need and what is it we need to do next? And what happens if the United States doesn't step up and can our allies and partners make up the difference somehow? Okay, so let me take your last question first. Um, if the United States doesn't step up, no. Our allies and partners cannot make up the difference, and Ukraine will lose. Um, it's as simple as that. And if Ukraine loses, all of those consequences that I talked about are going to be uh, are going to affect uh, not only our European allies. It'll be our European allies first, but it is going to affect the United States, and it's just a matter of time before um, you know my nineteen year old son is forced to put on a uniform and be sent uh, to actually fight. Um, that is what is at stake here. It is a global conflagration that is being avoided and being fought right now by the by Ukrainian soldiers. 
um, with with American with Americans' generosity. Um, and what Americans, um, I think, there's two things going on. One is um, Americans. It needs to be better explained to Americans what is at stake and the fact that this is uh, probably the most effective way of winning wars that the Americans have figured out um, since the founding of the republic. Um, American soldiers are not fighting. American soldiers are not dying. It is American training. It is American generosity and American equipment. And by the way, when American dollars are being uh, spent and given to Ukraine, in turn, Ukraine in turn then buys American equipment that help facilitate and gives right. American uh, American jobs and helps the American economy. So this is an incredible win 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 for the American people and for and for the United States and its allies. Um, to talk about domestic politics, I don't think that the messaging on this, Vago, has to be related to saving the world for democracy. I think it is simply about winning a conflict against the bad guys. Uh, Russia, I think... So you're saying don't over-intellectual. Let's even keep this simpler. Uh, Ameri- there's a great virtual cycle and... Yes. Americans, as Donald Trump uh, taught all of us and reminded all of us, like a winner. Uh, and um, the... the as as there's a direct correlation between Ukrainians uh, being successful on the battlefield and American support increasing for them, and and Ukrainians being stalled on the battlefield and American support waning a little bit. Um, so frankly, if if Mr. Biden wants to increase his chances at re-election in 2024, it's it, the opposite is true. Give them more, help them win. Mr. Biden will be seen as a winner and supporting a winner, and Americans will feel good about supporting a winner at the ballot box next year. Whereas, and I, I think so. This is, you know, I think this is a win-win-win for the administration. I think that pushing the Congress to continue to support them. Now, concretely, what do they need? They need airplanes and they need attackums. They and they need better strategy. Um, and so, um, you know, a lot of this is is financing. Um, but a lot of this is getting them the equipment uh, that they need so that they can that they can um, develop air superiority and take out some of the trenches, uh, the well-entrenched Russian troops. The Russians are going to um, have a, you know, they're going to be launching a civilian in- infrastructure during the winter, and then they're going to be um, loading up brand new recruits in the spring. And so, um, whereas traditionally in the past, winter has been a, a slow a slow time of the year for fighting. It's an opportunity, frankly, with the right equipment and weapons uh, to take out and um, not allow the Russians to continue and strengthen their their uh, their reinforcements. Uh, as as the saying goes, from your mouth to God's uh, ears, Peter. But um, you know the the border, is, I, I, and I think that there are a lot of folks who've said that the president should do a better job communicating and and delivering that message. Right? I mean, there's only I think been one prime time uh, address, or uh, uh, and and there should be more communications. Uh, in part because I you know I, the people aren't don't follow the news as closely as you and I do, especially out there where people are getting their news from non traditional sources and unfortunately can also be warped by uh this uh information let me just tell you there that is part of how we are under attack the russians and the chinese are using social media very effectively to make sure that our own citizens are getting uh that um very strange versions of the news and my 15 year old daughter uh who i can't 
you know, she's managed. She tells me that she's deleted her TikTok account, but then I realize she's still <laughs> on it. Uh, uh, tells me things that she sees on TikTok that are crazy. And that is part of, of the attack that we're under, Vago. And it's very important um, for all of us to understand that. Uh, I, I completely uh, agree. Uh, it takes me, Peter, to the next question, which is, uh, right, you make the case for fostering democracy around the world, right? Even if that's the goal, even if you don't have to make it in people's faces, it is uh, absolutely essential. Poland rejected its increasingly authoritarian government, and Donald Tusk has, is forming a new government. But Viktor Orban remains in power and continues to undermine democracy and be an irritant. The hard right candidates are on the rise across Europe and the Netherlands. Just uh, Geert Wilders was, was just elected. AADF, uh, AFD, excuse me, uh, is uh, gaining ground in Germany. Uh, the French right is very strong with Marine Le Pen. And it's elsewhere in the, in the United States, right? If you listen to the polls, uh, Donald Trump is going to get reelected and is already making the case, look, you know, I'll only be dictator for a day, but ultimately I'm going to drive forward all of my uh, agenda items, which to some uh, and, and, you know, some folks is, you know, try to make it even more difficult for democracy to, to succeed. Yeah. Ultimately, all of these movements are winning through the ballot box, Peter. So what is it that has to happen? Right. I mean, I understand, hey, let's foster democracy and advance the case. Their case is actually gaining resonance with populations. Um, what's what's the way to counter that messaging on all of its le levels? Because the stakes are very high, and the other side is saying, "Hey, you you elected me." Yeah. Um, there's two issues here, Vago. One is messaging, as you're pointing out, and um, uh, there are new tools in every generation, or not even generation, every election almost. There are new tools available to candidates. Um, and um, what we've seen over generations is that the candidate who is able to master these new tools of communication, you know, it goes back from the telegraph to the radio, to the television, uh, to the internet, to the social media, um, you know, has a real advantage in an electoral, in a campaign. But um, that's one side of it is the messaging. Um, the other side of it is the governing. Um, and in fact, um, uh, a lot of governments, including liberal governments or conservative, traditional conservative governments, have not governed with the uh, uh, sense of urgency or effectiveness that their citizens demand. Right. Um, and so, you know, there is there has been sort of uh, a failure, and you know, every country has a different version of a, of a loyal opposition, um, where uh, where where a government and an opposition party can come together to pass important legislation that is in the that is truly in the in the national interest um uh whereas now what we see uh, in universally in many democracies is no matter what the issue is the opposition is going to raise a raise you know slow down things use mechanics use games in the legislative process to slow things down and many times these are even things that they were in favor of when they sat in government and so the, right. the game playing um i do think you know there has to be a sort of a sense of urgency that democracy itself is on the line um, and that our democratically elected leaders, whether they be in the opposition or whether they be in government, uh, need to do a better job at coming together and, and delivering um, for 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 their people. And that's true. You know, it's true in, in right. the European continent. It's true in the North American continent. It's true in the Asian democracies. It's true all over the place. Um, Argentina is a good example. Argentina just... 
just inaugurated its brand new president, um, which who is completely uh, off the, uh, the 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 spectrum of normal Argentinian politics, uh, because the Argentinian electorate has been just tired of uh, of in, you know inflation rates that have been you know periodically crazy, uh, and, and they're looking for for different solutions. So until until governments, traditional governments, are able to give them good solutions, um, it's true voters are going to be looking for novel ways, and that's something that we have to be concerned with. And and uh, right, I mean, to your point, right? I mean, even if a rightist government comes in power, Georgia Maloney uh, has governed more toward the center, except on a few issues, and Javier Milei, uh, as you just mentioned, right, appears to be ab abandoning some of his more um, fantastical ideas. Uh, right. So it, it changes, you know, where, where you stand is where you sit. I think you quoted uh, President Kennedy in your uh, opening uh, uh, remarks at the forum. Let me ask you a question. You know, when we, you know, a, a lot of us who are in foreign and national security policy circles, right, like to talk about the international community. And we try to make it sound like it's big. And it's actually not that big. It's America, Canada, Europe. Australia, Japan, South Korea, that's kind of about it. Um, and it is in that space that China and Russia and Iran and uh, North, North Korea are, are actually actively competing, so much so that when you talk to very thoughtful diplomats from Africa or uh, in the Middle East or elsewhere, they make it abundantly clear they really don't want to choose. Yeah. Um, yeah. How... How do you how do we get past that? Because our vision of the world is very different from how some of our very messages are being received, right? How how do we engage actually with the rest of the world where illiberalism is unfortunately growing, right? India, I mean, if you'd have said this is where we were gonna be, and that Canada of all countries and the United States were gonna accuse New Delhi of assassinating their citizens on uh, you know, their sovereign soil, you just said, oh, come on, that's that's nuts. And yet, you know, so here we are. How do we do this? Well, you're opening up a whole new um, conversation. And I do think it's worthwhile, actually, just to talk uh, one of these days, just specifically about India and what our expectations uh, and, and, concrete... and I'm happy to give the audience a taste around it because I completely agree with you. Uh, we have this tendency of thinking that New Delhi is going to be with us against China, unless for whatever reason, right? New Delhi decides, well, actually, I might have more to gain by being with China. Okay, well, okay. what what happened to your strategy there? Okay. Anyway, that's no. Well, you just spelled it out, and if we use if we use India as a, as an example and sort of extrapolate from that, I think it's actually can be beneficial to your listeners. But we did a we did a panel at Halifax, an off the record panel this year called. Um, no more loyalty tests, a new era for global democracies. And during the Cold War, of course, there were loyalty tests. Um, you did have to pick a side. Um, you're either, you know, and that continued, frankly, after the 9 11 uh, environment. I, you know, in this day and age, um, I think that it behooves the United States and its allies not to demand loyalty tests, but to instead make the options so clear and the benefits so clear to partnering with the United States and its allies that the other options just look silly. And the, you know, the Chinese have tried to do that with their Belt and Road Initiative and giving people economic opportunity that it really looked attractive uh, to a number of countries until it's not that attractive. 
And what the United States and its allies have to do now is come in with alternatives, both economic and strategic alternatives that make good sense. Um, and, you know, if, if we really believe in the free market, let the free market decide, um, you know, you're either, you know, choose us, choose them, choose us for some things, choose them for some minor things, whatever. We can't, we can't ignore the fact that the Chinese market is significant for countries in Latin America. It is significant for, uh, for Africa. And so the idea that China is going to go away is, is not true. We're going to be in this for a long time. We have to be smarter and we have to be competitive minded and we have to make sure that our own systems are working well and can continue to be an advan to be an example to the world. Um, uh, again, uh, you know, on, on the mark, uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, I can write, I mean, anytime anything warms up with the, with the Chinese, uh, you know, there's a hue and cry, oh, you know, we're going soft and we're getting duped. And, you know, I don't think that's constructive. Uh, ultimately we're two big powers. There's a lot of trade, a lot of normalcy and a lot of things we can cooperate on, even if we fundamentally disagree with a lot of things. Uh, and then having those allies and partners and winning them over, and building these coalitions becomes so important. Um, you know, in your uh, introduction, right, this was the 15th uh, edition uh, of the Halifax Forum, and you sort of noted that actually almost everything that was, <laughs> that we've, the problems we've been discussing over the past 15 years are still the problems that we're discussing. And you hope that the new generation of 15-year-old fellows uh, that you guys have thoughtfully created, you know, it would be horrible for 15 years from now that they be dealing with some of these same challenges. Um, unfortunately, peace in the Middle East has been one of those. Um, Ehud Barak gave, uh, you know, in 2009, I think it was, you know, I mean, I attended one of the off the records and it was one of the most illuminating and fascinating. And it was a panel that ran a lot longer because there was a lot thoughtful to be said. Uh, in the wake of the horrific October 7 attacks, the Israeli people were awarded the McCain Prize this year for coming together in the face of tragedy. For some, that was a controversial uh, award, but the forum continues to call for a lasting two-state solution and equity and justice for everybody involved, ultimately. There are a lot of concerns about where we go next. Eventually, the war is going to wind down. How do we get the peace process back on track, and what does that end up looking like from your perspective as somebody who's watched this, both watched the cynicism of it, the feelings involved, the passions and everything. I mean, ultimately, where, where do we go and how do we get there? Well, just as I said about, I mean, I did make the point. Thank you, Vago. It's an important question. Um, you know, I made the point uh, at Halifax that you can't choose your neighbors. Um, and Not just, everybody can be lucky enough to live near Canada. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and um, you know, just as I said a moment ago that, you know, the chi China is not going anywhere we're going to be dealing with with a very large economy uh for for some time uh the state of israel is not going anywhere and the palestinian people are not going anywhere um and so you know this is not as complicated as those who want to make it complicated it is there is no alternative other than the two then a two then a two-state solution what it looks like, uh, um, you know, is the devil's in the details, and that's what that is what has eluded well-intentioned people, uh, both Israelis and Palestinians, for some time. Um, but that is the solution, and you know, as they say in the Middle East, God willing, uh, 
um, when when this war ends and this war is going to end, uh, that that people uh, again, well intentioned people on both sides will will come to that realization. Um, but this is it is important for your listeners to understand that this is what what we are seeing play out in Gaza right now is not similar uh, to the shorter things that we've seen over the years, really since 2006, 2007, when, when Hamas took over. This is, the Israeli society has, uh, it views this as a full-scale war. They view that the attack on October 7th was an act of war. Um, and so the results and the end of this war uh, remain to be, um, remain to be seen. Um, you know, like many of your listeners, I share the view that, that too many people have died already, uh, and um, you know, I, I do wish that this would come to a come to a quick ending um, with with uh, the military objectives met. Well, let me ask you one last uh, question about um, you know, there's a there's a saying that you know, left untended, small problems become big problems, right? Uh, that's that not little bump. That's not only huh? a state, that's not only a saying. In my view, it's a historical fact. It's a, it's a historical fact, right? Yeah. Uh, that little bump, it might become a big bump, right? Um, anyway, you get the analogy. Yeah. What, I mean, you know, it's it's easy to get kind of frustrated with this, right? Um, there are a lot of well-meaning people uh, who, are, who are trying to do this. I mean, you know, do you get any sense that at any point a light bulb's going to go off? Again, I mean, we're talking about cutting off aid to Ukraine because, one side feels that the border issue is a winning issue. I, you know, it's an election year. We cannot give the president a win. We're going to box him in, yeah. uh, and and he, you know, so how, 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 what has to happen to sort of make people go, hey, wait a minute, this this is really important, and you know, or or is this where we are, and it's actually only going to get worse from here? No, uh, the tools. Uh, I mean. The overarching theme of the Halifax International Security Forum, as you know, Vago, is essentially we, you know, we come in on Friday, and we lay out what the challenges are, and right. you know, sometimes they are bleak, and they're bleak right now. And over the course of the weekend, we give all of our participants who come from the democracies, we give them the information and the tools they need, so that when they leave on Sunday, uh, there's a spring in their step, and they feel that together we can actually take on these challenges and meet these challenges. And I believe we can. The challenges that you're talking about right now that's going on in the United States Congress with funding, look, the United States is a democracy uh, and all democracies, whether it's, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect democracy. It is messy and there is not a zero-sum game as the Russians like to think there are in other negotiations. This is not a zero-sum game. Um, you need to have good leadership. You need to have messages that resonate with with people, and you need to understand that that there has to be compromise somewhere along the way. That the word compromise became the bad it became a bad word. Um, it's not a bad word. It is what makes democracies strong. Um, and so, you know, I am confident, as we have to be, that our system, while not perfect, is the best system that we have. And everybody has to do their their job, you know, as you're doing it, Vago. You are a very important part of, of of our democracy and making sure that people understand what's at stake. And I want to thank you for that, uh, Peter. Thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, every once in a while, uh, it feels like uh, you know we're having the same conversations uh, over and over again, and that people know better. 
Um, and I would like uh, to think um, that people will put the greater interest ahead of their own individual interest and their own um, narrow political interest, right? It's never good to collude with a foreign power to win a, an election, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in France, whether it's anywhere, uh, ultimately, uh, that uh, or, or get, get help from them. And, you know, just before we go, you know, going back to Krinks, um, it, it is, right, it, it brings a vision, right? That's part of the idea of, of, of calling it this, as opposed to it being sort of nameless or positive sounding, right? Well, you know, what, what, I, what I like about Krinks is a couple of things. Number one is it identifies uh, squarely what the problem is, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and number two, to me, it sounds like what it is. It sounds like, you know, a little bit dishonest, a little bit nefarious, a little bit up to something crinks, whereas opposed, you know, a term like bricks was intentionally designed to make it sound strong as if as if they were building something. Crinks is the opposite. And, and we want to create a, an atmosphere where countries don't really want to be associated with crinks. You know, we don't want Brazil, for example, to be associated with crinks and they're going to be like, we don't want to be with the crinks um, <laughs> and, and others as well. So it's, I think, I think it's very important to, uh, to call it and to use a name and to identify it. And I'm going to stick with, with, uh, with, with the crinks and uh, then we know what the challenge is. A little bit of appropriate naming and shaming when necessary. Absolutely. Peter, hope you and yours have terrific holidays. Uh, certainly uh, looking forward to having you on more regularly over the coming year. Uh, and uh, and certainly you and your team keep up uh, the great work for what is uh, really uh, a unique jewel of an event. Uh, congratulations to all of you guys and uh, happy holidays and happy new year. Vago, I appreciate it so much. And let me just say right back at you, uh, you do great work and it's a privilege to be on your show. Thank you so much. Thank you.